So I will be covering, as was just read for you, um, chapter 24 here, beginning 1 through 12. And um, I, I ended last week as for our conclusion on Easter. I just read that portion of Scripture but didn't make for any comments that I could then preach it as a standalone passage this week because, as we mentioned, the timing of things. So after two years and almost a quarter um, of our time in Luke, we missed preaching the resurrection on Easter by one week. Um, uh, so uh, I, I wanted to at least address it, but then I was caught not wanting to skip it, uh, skip Joseph and uh, Arimathea, the centurion, the dynamics there with the thief on the cross. Um, Luke has taken great pains to carefully craft a beautiful gospel work, and um, so I didn't want to skip over uh, what he had to say to us. But this morning, I would like to preach on chapter 24, 1 through 12 um, now and address each piece of the text. And as we come to this passage, um, I don't want to make too much um, of uh, the role of the women in the narratives of the resurrection, but I don't want to make too light of the role of the women in the presence and the narratives of the resurrection. Um, it, It is very significant It's an important detail, and we've noted it before in other moments in the Gospels. Um, It is significant for you as a Christian, the way that God had designed the evidence of the resurrection, the evidence for the resurrection, who is actually present and noted the resurrection first, who was at the crucifixion moments, who's reporting them, and who has written them. Uh, Each piece of that dynamic is for your certainty, for your evidence, for the evidence of encouraging your faith in the truth of the resurrection. And, and again, I've mentioned it before in times past, but just to bring you up to speed once again, it's really important in the apologetics of your own faith in your own mind as you would speak forth and receive the word that's preached to you in faith. As you're receiving it, it's important for your own mind to once again recall the evidences for the resurrection apologetically, and that is, if the gospel writers, this is a very significant piece, and I'll draw it out in just a moment, but if the gospel writers were choosing to write a believable legendary story, so so again, if we entered into kind of a liberal perspective of conspiracy theories regarding the disappearance of the body of Jesus, just to entertain it for a moment, because again, your faith is very reasonable. It doesn't jettison reason. And this is an appeal to you to have faith as in no object whereby your faith does rest. So, so, so sure, it is that we live through faith, but a faith that abides in a real person, a real God, real historical event that did occur. That matters to the reasonableness of our own faith. And so when you think about how to receive it, I want to press once again, if the gospel writers were choosing to write what has been suggested time and time and time again and will always be suggested henceforth, is that if they were to write a believable legendary story, that is, they wanted to spark a movement in the first century, they, they lost what they had, they thought they had, at least in Jesus of Nazareth, if they had lost that by crucifixion, by a martyr's death, and they wanted to spur a movement of going forward and regain the ground that they had lost, they would not... They would absolutely not use the testimony of women to do it. They just would not. 
and, and, and that, that is just, again, for our own sakes of exactly how the story is being told, who was present at the resurrection, who was present at the crucifixion, and who is telling all the community initially about the resurrection. It is women. Again, I highlight this um, from the idea that in ancient societies, and as we watch... Um, multiple events kind of taking place with women and men in our current society and, and the, the themes of patriarchy and so on and so forth. Whatever you make of that now, however, is neither here nor there really because we all will address the fact that in ancient society, women were without a doubt marginalized. And their testimony, furthermore, given very little attention. So, again, to take it out of our current kind of milieu and our current politics around the idea, we all receive at this point in the text, no one wanting a story to get off the ground well and establish a revolutionary movement based on it would tell the story from the eyewitnesses of women. They would have been outright rejected as just simply being hysterical. And I can provide you immediate evidence of this. And that it, it, it would appeal to the reasonableness of your own faith in the events of the resurrection. They would have never drafted it this way. Look right in chapter 24, where the immediate evidence of this is in the text. Look in verse um, uh, I'll jump back up there. I'm stealing my thunder on verse 8 because they remember, but at any rate, we'll jump into verse 8 and then move forward. The point being, look who's reporting it and look how they're being treated. Verse 8, and they remembered his words and returning from the tomb. They told all these things to the eleven. Remember, Judas is gone. Luke tells us what happened to him in Luke part 2, the book of Acts. But at this point, there are 11 remaining. So, so, the, so these women come back and they told all these things. The men who appeared in dazzling apparel. Then we went to a tomb and so on and so forth. And they told the 11 and to all the rest. Which is interesting about the early faith community that is developing here. You notice the first people they reported to are the apostles. They're already emerging as the men who will be the kind of nucleus, the center of the emerging church community going forward after the resurrection. First people they tell are the leaders, the 11, this band of brothers who are going to then see the Spirit descend and, and experience its empowerment and move forward in the thunderous preaching of the church in the book of Acts. They tell them first and to all the rest, everybody else that would hear. Then he gives us uh, the women who were present. They told the, the, These are the women who are told these things to the apostles. Again, repeating, to the apostles. They, so they came back, they told the 11. They told everybody else. They told the apostles. Verse 11. But these words seem to them an idle tale. They're dismissed with a hand wave. Just, come on, seriously? And, and then he further developed. And, and not only is it an idle tale, the idea that you're just being hysterical. They did not believe them. It's outright dismissed. And, and that wouldn't be, in that sense, in this setting, shame on them. The idea is we have to just understand a woman's testimony would not have stand up to be well-received. 
for 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 you know structural societal reasons, it was ungraciously dismissed with a hand wave. It's an idle tale. You didn't see what you think you saw. Blah blah blah. Sure 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 sure. They didn't believe them. So the question then has to come out as we look at these texts, why then use women so prominently if even among the apostles themselves we see their testimony simply being dismissed? Can you sense the urgency with which they came back to tell the apostles, you won't believe? And they're like, you're right, we don't. Then then why are they featured so prominently in the resurrection narratives? And it's not just Luke who does it. Why? Why? The answer is simple. This is not a legend. It is not a fairy tale. It is grounded historical event. Like it or not, through whom it comes, from whom it comes, this is exactly what happened. There's no glossing. There's no polishing. There's no exchange of different character. The reality is, this is exactly how it happened. Now, notice a brief cursory uh, kind of introduction of the women who are present because they're emerging in verse 20, or chapter 23. These women are emerging as significant storytellers, significant characters within the narratives of the resurrection. It begins at the crucifixion. Look at these women, if you will, in chapter 23, beginning in um, verse 48 of chapter 23. And, and all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, this public display of crucifixion, when they saw what had, ha- what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. And now, again, here, here is a, not subtly written, but importantly, uh, importantly written here for our notation. Verse 49, they're emerging here. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now, what kind of character profile are we given already about these women? What kind of virtue do we see in them in contrast to the crowds? They had followed him from Galilee. You see, they stood there on the day of crucifixion watching the most gruesome moments of our Lord's crucifixion and stood to support him. Listen to the text. All his acquaintances and the women who had followed him, they stood at a distance. Watching what? Verse 48, the spectacle. They stood at a distance watching him be crucified. Notice that then it doesn't stop simply with with them and, and their dedication to following Christ. Their love of him. We pick up verse 50, and and I'll just read through it quickly, but notice the women reappear. These women love the Lord. Verse 50, now there was a man named Joseph, uh, um, Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, and he gives a serious notation, Luke does, to say, hey, he did not conspire against our Lord. Verse 51, he had not consented their decision and their action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man, Joseph of Arimathea, he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. 
Then he took it down and he wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. The point of this piece is, at the point of burial here, you would bury multiple people in a single grave. Joseph is clearly a man of means and prominence. He's able to get the body, he wraps it, and then he puts it in a tomb that no one else had been laid. So if you put a body in a tomb, you'd put, place them there, and then the body decomposed, and then you take the bones out and you put them in an ossuary. But, but, that, but that, that grave could be reused. Um, Joseph is a man of means, and no one had ever been there. And, and he took the body of our Lord to place it in there because he was seeking the kingdom of God. Verse 54, to stay on point, it was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. So again, we're ending uh, Friday in, uh, in the evening. We're emerging into Sabbath. So there's a small window of time here that Joseph is working with. But notice who's reappearing in verse 55. The women who were in verse 49, standing by and observing the crucifixion. Notice what they did. They watched Joseph also go and get the body and take it down. Verse 55 the women who had come. Wait a minute, wouldn't you pick the men if you really wanted this movement to get off the ground? How are these women emerging as star-featured star people in the narrative story? If you want a movement about the resurrection, you're going to pick someone else who faithfully stood by, who then followed to the tomb, and were the eyewitnesses reporting to the apostles. But no, this is exactly how it is designed because this is exactly how it happened. This is just the truth of the matter. Verse 55, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed. They followed behind Joseph as he had the body of our Lord. And they saw the tomb. That, that's a key piece that I'll, that I'll develop in just a moment. But please notice the role of the women. They, had, they, had, they are those who had followed him from Galilee. They, they love him and they're with him. And then they saw what, what, what Joseph was doing. And, and, and they followed him. And then they saw the tomb. And, and then notice the further detail, what they saw about the tomb. So, so again, you could walk into this cut in the rock, and then there's this open area, and then there's this place where the body is laid, and people could stand in it. What did the women see? They saw the tomb, here it is, and how the body was laid. I saw him there. I was in there. We followed Joseph. He took the body. He was granted the body. He wrapped it, and he walked off, and we followed him. We saw where he went, the tomb. We saw in the tomb how the body was laid. The women saw this. And then notice what they did. Because, again, we're moving towards Sabbath. So verse 56 is that kind of final closing of the window of the day of preparation. Then they returned. So they returned and they prepared spices and ointments. And the the point of the spices and the ointments is to come back and to put it upon the body to help with the stench of decomposition. So it gives you an insight into the psychology of the women at the time. They're going to get spices and ointments to do what? Come back um, and, and put it on the body to give him a, a dignified burial. There is one more note that I want to make um, in 56. On Sabbath, on the Sabbath, they rested. 
and, and, and very carefully it notes, according to the commandment. If you were to go to the birth narrative of our Lord, you, you'll be able to go to Luke 2 there, and you'll see when he was born and the lawfulness of his birth, everything was followed. On the eighth day, he was circumcised. Then he was taken to the temple. Each one who is the first to open the womb is dedicated to the Lord. The, the lawfulness of our Lord, even at his birth in his family, in upholding and keeping a righteous law, in the centrality of obedience to the commands of God in the believing community is everywhere. Even in this moment of crucifixion, the law was obeyed as the word of the Lord. Sabbath was kept. So in his birth, in his life, and in his death, Luke wants you to know everything was lawful. Everything was obedient. But again, to the point, um, I would submit to you the only reason, if I can convince you with three lines of evidence, the only possible reason for the presence of the women in these accounts, the women who emerge as key features of the, of the truth of the resurrection and their testimony of what they saw, is because that is exactly what happened. They are reporting to Luke exactly what they saw. So if I can then summarize the role of the women here as we then jump into chapter 24, there are three lines of evidence that intertwine at this moment from the women's testimony that I hope convince you or add to your faith that Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. And there's three lines of evidence that intertwine here with the role of the women that help us grasp this in a very meaningful way reasonable and tangible way. Number one, the first line of evidence that that is to convince our own faith and ground it deeply in the truth of the resurrection through the story of the women is, number one, they did not expect the resurrection. They didn't expect it. Uh, Again, look at the text just very carefully. As you note, their intention is very clear to us from Luke. They followed him to the tomb. They saw it. They saw how the body was laid. What was their response? Well, they went back to prepare spices and ointments. For what? To bring it back to the body where they saw him laid. Again, these women were not going off and saying something to one another. Let's go back. Let's take these spices just in case he's still dead. But let's all hope he isn't. That is not the story. They fully think he will be there when they go back. These women did not expect the resurrection. Number two, the second line of evidence that helps intertwine to give us a clear picture of the truth of the resurrection by the way of the testimony of the women is number two, they knew exactly where the body of Jesus was located. Number two, so so number one, they didn't expect the resurrection. And it's clear from their work. Number two, they knew exactly where the body of Jesus was located. How does this shape our view of the truth of the resurrection through their testimony? Well, again, if if you were to read um, um, various accounts of, of unbelievers in the thought of the resurrection, how it went down, what possibly could have taken place, one of the theories put forward is that they simply went back to the wrong location. 
They went back to the wrong gravesite. Right? So, so, so having gone back to the wrong location, they, being confused, falsely reported a, a, a resurrection event. But, but look carefully. Luke is saying, no, it's not possible. That's outside the realm of what's most reasonable. That they simply got lost? They went to the wrong location? No, no, they, they went back thinking he would be there. Well, they must have went to the wrong place. No, and no, they, they couldn't have. How, how, how not? Here is the body of evidence. They followed Joseph with the body. They saw the tomb. And further, they saw how the body itself was laid. How is it that we'd simply dismiss the resurrection as a hysterical account where people simply went to the location that was wrong? That's why every part of these narratives matter. That's why Luke is saying they saw the tomb. They followed. They saw, and they saw how the body was laid. This gives evidence of the fact they were not confused on the first day of the week. Jesus is resurrected. Number three, the third and final kind of piece to the role of the women as eyewitness accounts in the power of resurrection testimony is they are living witnesses. They're living witnesses. They didn't expect the resurrection to occur. It's evidenced by their activities. They knew exactly where the body was laid. In other words, they didn't go to the wrong tomb the first day of the week. And thirdly, they are living witnesses. Now, of course, you know I'm not putting forward that they are alive right now at this moment on the earth for us to go talk to them. Clearly, obviously, that's not what I'm suggesting. At the point of this text, they are indeed living witnesses. Look over uh, in the same into chapter 24, what was briefly read at the very beginning, and and this is where it counts in verse 10. So I kind of skipped over it in verse 10 a little bit at the very beginning because I want to come back to it at this point, and that is the third line of evidence of the resurrection is that these women are living witnesses to the account. And and how do how do we see that? We'll look at verse 10 now. So you have, you have verse 9, they told all these things to the 11 and to everybody else. Who told everybody? I'll tell you very specifically. It was Mary Magdalene. Oh. And, and Joanna. In the community of faith. In the household of faith. Joanna. And, and Mary was there. The, the mother of James. And the other women with them. As you would go talk to Mary. Joanna, Mary, the mother of James. The women who were with them told these things to the apostles. Again, in the third line of evidence of the reality of the resurrection, of what took place that first day on Lord's Day, the first day of the week, why would we know the names of the women involved very specifically? Why would he list the names? It's the same reason we know the name of Simon of Cyrene. We know that there is a man named Simon, and we know that he is from Cyrene. Why is it that Mark then, as we looked earlier in the account, where, hey, you, carry this cross, and we think about the testimony of Simon. Simon who? Simon of Cyrene. Mark adds who his two sons are. Why? Because, in other words, same with the listing of the women here, the two sons of Simon of Cyrene, or the fact that we know that Simon was even from Cyrene, is Luke is including their names because he is keeping his original pledge 
that he stated in chapter 1. That's over two years ago. Will you go back to Luke chapter 1 with me just for a moment? This is why he's telling you the names. This is why we know where Simon is from. If you're in chapter 1, look at the dedication of the letter, the dedication of the gospel account. And Luke keeps this pledge to the very end. Verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Do, do you see many eyewitnesses? Many people have preached. Many people have written. Many people have spoken. It seemed good to me, being well acquainted with all the tradition, to write an orderly account for you. You, at here this morning at Redeemer, to write an orderly account for you, the people of God. Why? What's the end game for us now knowing who was there? We'll look at the very last verse of the introduction. Verse 4. This is why I'm doing it. This is why I've recorded it. That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. In other words, Luke is saying to you, to me, to the original reader, if you want to check out the veracity of my claims, the truth of my story, go talk to these women who were there. They will corroborate everything I have written. You see, the resurrection isn't a fable. It isn't an idea. It isn't a legend. It is a life-transforming, world-changing event. It occurred in time. And it was no one other than the Lord Jesus Christ who was raised. I wrote it this way so that you will be certain of that truth. Of all the things you've been taught about it, of all of its implications, of all of its future hope that it brings to the present, I wrote it in such a way. I went and asked him. I interviewed him. How do I know the details regarding the birth narrative of our Lord? I went and asked. I heard the preaching. I read the letters. And I've compiled an eyewitness account for you that your faith might be certain in our tradition. Now, then he picks up here in chapter 24, because I'm not starting all over, so don't be worried. But we are picking up now into Luke 24. And, and I just want to read a, 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 an introduction just briefly about 24, because we'll have a few weeks in chapter 24. Um, and, and the reason is because it, it, it's, it's going to be... Um, it, chapter 24 is so beautifully written, as is the rest of the gospel. But if I could read this introduction just regarding Luke 24. Quote, Luke 24 is a small masterpiece designed as the closing scene for a large-scale work of art. Are you ready for Luke 24? Okay, so, so once again, we're moving into, we're winding down our hard work. 
and we're waiting for, for pay grade, right? Here, here it comes. And, and we're coming in. And our landing zone is Luke 24. Luke 24 is a small masterpiece designed as the closing scene for a large-scale work of art. Whether or not, as tradition fancifully suggests, the author of the third gospel was himself a painter, his skill in sketching verbal pictures is unmatched in the New Testament. And his resurrection chapter displays it in full measure. A beautiful chapter written as the climactic moments of a long gospel story. And at center of the climactic story of Jesus of Nazareth, at center of our faith, is the reality of the resurrection. So if I could just briefly, in my last few moments, show you how he kicks off chapter 24 in a masterful way to verbally draw us into the drama of the truth of the resurrection. Look at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 24 now as we get started in our last chapter of Luke. So he says, uh, picking up, but on the first day of the week, the day that we're gathering here today, and we'll see that in, in 1 Corinthians, the book of Acts, and the book of Revelation, we're here gathered on Lord's Day because of this event right here on the first day of the week. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb. Why? Because they're bringing the spices, because they're prepared to bury the Lord in an honorable way to help fight the smell and stench of decomposition. So they went to the tomb, fully expecting him to be there. I'm getting in Luke's way, sorry. Back with Luke. They went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord. Now, again, notice how very carefully Luke is going to paint the women who he has been working with to highlight in the emerging story of the resurrection. In his greatest chapter yet, he picks up a brilliant presentation of the women who love our Lord and who are here coming to the tomb on the first day of the week. He purposely presents them as women on a mission, that they're women on a quest. Notice the text. So, so the first day of the week, Sabbath is over. We've got what we prepared, and we are on our way to the tomb. You're not going to the wrong tomb. No, no, no. We already settled that. Luke already shows. Yeah, we saw it. We saw the body. We saw the tomb. Okay, first day of the week, we're up. We're taking our spices, and we are on the way. Look at how he writes very carefully again. At early dawn, they went to the tomb. They went to the tomb. Why? Fully expectantly. We're going to the tomb, and we know what we will find. Right? So here they go on a mission, on their way to the tomb. Now, what did they find? The very first object that appears on their mission that they find is not what they expect. Verse 2. And they found. Sure, they found the body. No, no, no. That's not what they found. They went looking for the body, and they found the stone rolled away. This is not what they were seeking. But they went, and they found but not what they were seeking. They found a stone. And Luke reinforces this idea. They went, they found, but look at what they did not find. Verse 3, 
they then went in and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the cadence. He's trying to show you. They are fully intent and fully expectant on finding something. They went, they found, but they did not find what they were looking for. Almost sounds U2-ish in the cadence. Right? You go home and listen to that. You're like, oh, that's what this is about. I get it. Finally. They went. They found but they didn't find what they were looking for. And the response to this is very predictable. Right? So look at it's just so they went, they found, but they didn't find while they were perplexed about this. Right? It's very predictable. They went and they fully expected to find the body of our Lord, but when they went, they found a stone and they didn't find the body. This is astonishing. It's bewilderment. We're on a mission with the spices in hand to find the body. But what we found instead is a stone. And notice this is exactly how the angel then speaks to them in their bewilderment. Not just to the fact that he's not here, but to their general quest overall. You see, I'm bewildered, I'm perplexed, I'm amazed. The body isn't here. But the angels appear and they speak to them about the, not just the perplexing thought that the body is no longer here, but he addresses the quest in general. Look at his response. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Again, the response is predictable if we know how people interact with divine beings. Verse 5, as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. Again, very predictable, very biblical, very standard response of running into an angelic character. They were frightened now, and they bowed their faces to the ground. But see, they're still bewildered. What is going on? The men said to them, do you see how he addresses them? Why do you Seek. Because that's what looks... They went there seeking. They went. They found a stone. They didn't find the body of the Lord. Their bewilderment. Amazing. Why did you seek the living among the dead? Do you see the shock to their system? What do you mean? We came seeking the dead. Among the dead, right? That's why I'm asking you. Not why are you bewildered? Why are you astonished? Why are you perplexed? The body is not here. Why are you even here looking for him? Why the journey with the spices? What do you mean, of course we would come? We were with Joseph of Arimathea yesterday. We saw the tomb. We saw where he was laid. We saw how the body was laid. He was dead. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Verse 6, very carefully he continues. He is not here. Why are you here looking for him? He is living. Do you see the language? He has risen. 
He's with the living. Why are you here seeking? You, you see, as we look at the women then in the end of the story here, in one sense, Luke is certainly highlighting and framing them as very pious, humble, godly women who love the Lord Jesus. And, 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 and their quest to bring him spices and ointments for proper burial reflects this instinct, reflects this genuine faith that rests upon him. They love him. They're there for him. They saw what happened to him. They saw where he was laid. They went home and they prepared and they came back seeking him because of their piety. But the entire quest is wrong-headed. Why are you seeking? Of course we're seeking, but why are you seeking him here? He can't be found. He is not dead, but he has risen. So it's not simply the seeking of Jesus that was wrong. It's the seeking Jesus that he is still dead that is wrong-headed. Notice how the angel then responds to the women, and this is uh, moving the text forward. He says, remember, do you call to mind how he told you? While he was still in Galilee, we weren't in Galilee. Oh, yes, you were. Luke already told us these women came from Galilee with him. These are the same women. Unless you get off on an air and you think, no, 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 they weren't there. They wouldn't have known that. They were from Galilee. Luke already told us that. They were with him in Galilee. They followed him from Galilee. So the angel says, do you remember what he told you when you were in Galilee? Do you remember? You were there. Well, what was he telling us? He told you there that the Son of Man, the beginning of the end, the Son of Man, the apocalyptic figure, that it was he? Do you remember? That the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and he would be crucified, and on the third day rise? Do you remember? And as he spoke these words to them, verse 8, they remembered his words. You see, when we think about the doctrine of the resurrection, it wasn't that the women coming here didn't believe in the reality of a resurrection. The the idea of resurrection is not so perplexing. It's that one man would begin the reality and events of the resurrection. You see, if if we look at the doctrine of resurrection developed, you remember Jesus rebukes the Sadducees for not believing the resurrection. Remember, that was just in Luke chapter 20. He went after them on the resurrection. He proved that even Moses preaches a resurrection. So it's not the idea that there is a resurrection that is so perplexing. It's that the resurrection supposed to occur is a global apocalyptic event where all are raised, all have lives, some in judgment, some in new life, the all apocalyptic moment of resurrection. That's the idea at this moment of resurrection. But that Jesus, the Lord, would in a singular event rise and begin the resurrection is astonishing. 
N.T. Wright carefully speaks this way of it. Nobody had ever dreamed that one single living person would be killed stone dead. Again, like we confessed in the Heidelberg Catechism this morning, why is it important that he was buried? Because it proves that he really died. And no one had ever dreamed that one single living person would be killed stone dead and then be raised to a new sort of bodily life, the other side of the grave, while the rest of the world carried on as before. That's what's astonishing is that the age that is to come broke into this age in the reality of the resurrection. He is our pledge. He is our guarantee of our future in the age that is to come. Yeah, sure. As we look at Acts, did the world keep going on as it did before? Certainly not in the church. Thunderous preaching took place about what? The reality of the resurrection. It was a world-changing event. But the glory of that event is that the age that is to come in broke into this age where we become through faith dual citizens. We belong and live in this age, but our soul belongs to the age that is to come. How do you know that will occur? Jesus has been raised. In conclusion, I just want to read for you where Paul picks up this theology in 1 Corinthians 15, and then we'll be done this morning. Please turn to 1 Corinthians 15. As the doctrine becomes solidified, clarified, and even codified in the New Testament church as it moves on, you know as a Christian in your reading of the New Testament how much theology rests. We might as well say all theology rests on the reality of the resurrection. All of it. So as the, as the church moves forward, the heartbeat of the preaching of justification through faith, the reality of the resurrection stands at the center. And by the time it gets codified with, through Paul and the epistles in the New Testament, the greatest chapter probably in the New Testament on the resurrection is here in 1 Corinthians 15. I draw your attention to it just briefly in conclusion That's what's perplexing. That was what's astonishing. That is where the bewilderment comes from. He was supposed to be here. We watched him die. Yes, he has been raised. What? The resurrection began in Jesus of Nazareth. And it is your guarantee that you, like him, will be raised. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead. Peter went in, by the way, at the end of Luke, and he saw the um, garments where where the burial garments were laid, and he marveled. At that point in time, he is still not embracing it. But he indeed marvels at it. But as Paul lays out here, it's a fact. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits 
of those who have fallen asleep. No, I thought it was only an apocalyptic event. This isn't the moment of the resurrection. The idea that one would raise as the first fruits of all who come after him, that is astounding. Yes, and it's a fact. For as by one man came death, one man by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. This is astounding. I'm perplexed. Yes, by one man has come the reality and promise and guarantee of the resurrection. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, that Easter day, that day, the first day of the week, where the women went to the tomb to prepare the spices. The angel said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? No, 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 we're not. We're looking for the dead among the dead. No, no, no. He has risen. Each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits of the age that is to come that embraces in this age. And then, this is the mindset. Then at his coming, those who belong to him. Then comes the end. This is the theology that is developing. This is what you embrace. And these women were perplexed by. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that he has by way of resurrection destroyed, but he must ultimately deal its final blow. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's what was perplexing. Is that the age that is to come could inbreak this age that we live in. And that we, through faith, can be citizens of a kingdom that is yet to come. Christ being the first fruits. Let's pray. Father,